Hi folks, this is Shaq Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November the 2nd, 2015, and this is episode 1670 of the Survival Podcast. It's also the first show of a new month, uh, in November, November. Uh, so one third of quarter four is done for the year. Do you get that? 2015 is just ticking away. Is it just me, or is this year seem to move at uh, almost an accelerated pace compared to other years? Um, there's years that I felt just dragged on, like it's been forever since Christmas time. It's been forever since Thanksgiving, and man, I feel like we just had Thanksgiving. I feel like we just went through Christmas. Maybe it's just the you know typical thing. As you get older, time seems to move faster because you've experienced more of it. Uh, when you're a you know, five-year-old little kid, you know, an hour is a long time. As an adult, an hour would be a nice nap if you could be left alone for that long. Yeah. Um, but I bring this up, and you know why. Tick-tock, tick-tock. The clock is ticking for us all, whether there were 5, 15, 50, you know, it doesn't matter. The time we have, however long it is, and no one really knows how long they have, is always running out. Every day we wake up with the potential, the potential to get certain things done. We either do or we do not. That's it. That's one thing Yoda in Star Wars was right about. There is no try when you measure things that way. You've either done what you've set out to do or you've gotten a certain amount of things done. But at the end of the day, what you tried to do is irrelevant. What you did is what matters. It's what goes in the bank for the future. Keep that in mind as we continue our journey together on the Survival Podcast, because this is a show about, you guessed it, getting shit done in our own lives. Before we get into that further, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is... Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Shockingly enough, you can get Berkey water filtration systems from Jeff because he is the Berkey guy, the actual one, the only Berkey guy. There's a lot of places you can get a Berkey, but I only know of one Berkey guy, and I only know of one person with Jeff's fanatical dedication to his customers. Absolutely beyond belief how dedicated to customer service Jeff is and to making sure everybody gets uh, what they were expecting, and if there's a problem, it gets corrected fast and properly. Uh, Jeff's been with me as a sponsor for more than five years now. That's kind of unheard of in podcasting. It's really kind of unheard of in conventional radio, if you really think about it, to have sponsors stick with somebody that long. He does a great job for this audience. I, I haven't had any real complaints about him in five years. I had one person mad, but it was well, the post office did it, and there's only so much a person can do about the post office. Um, Jeff just takes care of everybody, and he has the, some of the best pricing available because those years years of great customer service have made him one of the top distributors for Berkey in the world. So he gets some really great pricing that he passes along to you. He also has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find all his Berkey stuff and all his other great stuff, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods at his website, directive21.com. Again, the website for Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, directive, and the number's 21, followed by a dot and a com. Check him out today, and don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could deal with the original, the one and only, the true Berkey Guy, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. 
Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines, be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, raw herbs, and herbal supplements, and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you, and if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home, to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, Do not forget to get your premium membership, 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. In every episode, we take a look at the year that was, 1670 in this case, to give us some context on what's going on in the modern day. I have today for you two from Alex Shrugged at TSPWiki.com. The first is Virginia seasoning falls to 10%, and then we have one king, one law, one faith, For a seven-year-old. I'm going to read Virginia seasoning falls 10%. The good news is that only 10% of new Virginia colonists are dropping dead this year. In previous years, the death toll had reached 33%. Some colonists die within a week of getting off the boat. The newbies are considered useless until they have undergone seasoning. That means surviving the malaria season, but the Virginians have learned how to avoid Vivex malaria parasite by not wandering around at night and avoid marshy areas. Currently, malaria is called marsh fever. They might have tried to cure it using quinine, but that was a relatively new medicine used in Italy. The disease is not contagious, but mosquitoes won't be identified as a disease vector until 1898. The colonists have figured out one other thing. Only 3% of black West African slaves succumb to the disease. That is why they are preferred as field workers over indentured servants, even though the slaves are significantly more expensive. Indentured servants are generally Europeans, and the death rate of 10 to 33 percent in the first year, they won't even make back the cost of their fare to cross the Atlantic. 
My take by Alex Shrug. Malaria is actually a parasite that is delivered when a mosquito bites and releases spores into the bloodstream from an infected person to an uninfected person. Symptoms occur seven to 30 days. Usually it is treated, if treated, it, it is treated quickly, the parasite spores, unless, I'm sorry, unless it is treated quickly, the parasite spores get into the liver and it becomes an ongoing problem. If you live, that is. And because Europeans have a death rate of 50% to 65% in West Africa, slave ships began running mostly black Western African crews rather than white European crews. They don't tell you that in school, do they? Another de development is coming from malaria is air conditioning. A doctor believed that by cooling down the air, he might cure the disease. It didn't work, but his experiments required an ice bath to cool the room, so he figured out a way to produce ice cubes. It's not the first refrigeration device ever invented, but it's close. The original device still sits in the Smithsonian today. Well, guys, gals, think about this. Um, we are told that we have less malaria today because of better control of mosquitoes. But I'd like you to think about this. How many times, especially if you live in the southeastern, south central, and, and kind of the, the northern, western, northeastern Atlantic part of the United States, how many mosquitoes do you get bit by a year? I mean, have we eradicated mosquitoes? No, we have not. So have you ever asked yourself, why if I go down to certain parts of the world will I get bit by mosquitoes and possibly get malaria and I need to use preventative measures? In the United States, mosquitoes buzz all over the place, bite me on the face, bite me on the ear, bite me on the neck. I swat the little things, the devilish little creatures, blood goes everywhere, and, and, and yet somehow we don't have malarial outbreaks in the United States anymore. Well, it's because... Most of the time when you're bit by a mosquito in the United States, it's a little guy known as Aedes aegypti, the most common mosquito in the United States. It's also the one that can transmit things like West Nile virus. But guess what? It just doesn't transmit malaria. Can you believe that? There's a mosquito known as Anopheles. The Anopheles mosquito is the one that transmits malaria. And it's the only one that transmits malaria. They still do exist in certain parts of the southeastern United States, but they're not very common. And also a lot of the conditions that, in, that, that caused malaria to be there in the first place, it's a, a parasite, as, uh, as Alex says, are not there anymore. It's not that they're... The, the environment's not there for the mosquitoes to breed, but the truly hot, warm, cesspool-like conditions that malaria develops in are not completely unfound, but they're far less prevalent due to drainage and a better understanding of things like that. Uh, and this little anopheles sky kind of pretty much lives on the blood of humans. That's his deal. He doesn't, or she really, doesn't spend a lot of time like biting dogs or whatever. So they can't really spend a lot of time out in the boondocks unless there's some boony people in the boondocks with them. So this all adds up to if we have good drainage, we have good systems, uh, we have good control measures around uh, inhabited areas, we can put the kibosh on malaria. But I think a lot of people don't realize that. They think that malaria is something that just happens in the tropics. Malaria has historically been one of the greatest killers of mankind throughout the history of the world. And for a long time, people didn't even know what it was. And it also led to the development of air conditioning. So for all the bad, there is some good. Anyway, with that, let's get into uh, the main topic of today's show. Oh, wait, MSB. I got a special announcement. Put out a post yesterday. 
on a Sunday. I'm going to do one more lifetime membership sale for MSB for the year. Done. Finished. The end. Um, doing the upgrades to the West Pasture are costing me more than I budgeted for. And uh, while I'll still come out okay in the event, uh, I don't get the money until we do the event. i got to get all the stuff for the event. So it just made sense to do. And plus, the last time I did it, the 15 memberships sold out in like five, six minutes or something like that. So obviously, the demand is there. It kind of blew me away. It was that heavy. But a lifetime membership to MSB, if you don't already have one, is 300 bucks, and you never have to pay again. And uh, 9 a.m. Wednesday morning, a post will go live. And it's just first come, first serve. Whoever gets it, gets it. Uh, that's the only way I can do this fairly. And that's it. 15 and done. And no more for the rest of the year. And probably be late next year before we do that again. So if you want to be a lifetime member, you can do that. Everybody else, if you just want to be a member, go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on members to learn more. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, and first responders. All of you qualify for a discount. Email me before, not after you join. TSPC service discount in the subject line. No, there's not a discount on lifetime memberships. You don't discount a product that sells out in five minutes. Just don't do it. I want to support the service people there. That's why I have a discount on the regular memberships. But um, honestly, these are something I do in very limited numbers from time to time, and that's the way it is. So with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show, which is your feedback. I've got a ton of feedback. Today's going to be uh, more of a Newsday feedback day and less of a qu There's some questions, but a lot of this is stuff in the news. And Mondays seem to run the gamut. One Monday we're kind of in a news-ish world and uh, current topics and all. And the next Monday we're kind of into how do I, right? And I like doing both. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on right now, though, that, you know, it's the typical magician black hat bullshit that's going on in the, in, in the media with things and polarizing America to, to two sides. So you might imagine my first story that I've gotten from a lot of you is, a girl that was beaten like a rag doll by a police officer in a school. Yeah. And there's there's two sides emerging to this. One, of course, the left side is going, it's because she's black. It's a racist thing. Well, my understanding of this cop, who, by the way, is a scumbag, is I think his girlfriend's black. So I, I, I don't think that's the problem. And he actually kind of got along well with a lot of kids in the school. And a lot of kids in the school didn't like him. It was you know, in that... I'm being a cop, but the guy is a scumbag, and if you don't think he is, and all you've heard uh, are all the talk radio hosts, especially on the right, because I'll get to what they're saying next, um, talk about this, you might think, well, you know, you're supposed to do what you're told by a police officer, and this girl didn't comply, and she resisted arrest, and she struck this guy with a fist. Watch the video, okay? If you watch this video, and you think what this cop did is okay and acceptable, then what you should do is ball your right hand up into a fist and punch yourself in the face until you're good and bloody and then go dip your head in a vat of alcohol because maybe you'll start to figure things out if you get something that dramatic to yourself because you're a freaking moron. If you watch what this man did to this girl who's about maybe a third of his weight, he is an oath-breaking scumbag Law enforcement officer, they should be stripped of all authority whatsoever and never so much as have the authority of a mall cop ever again for the rest of his life. He belongs doing something, I don't know, cleaning gutters or, I don't know, washing dishes in a Denny's or something like that. But no place of authority. This man does not have the temperament to be a law enforcement officer and certainly not in our schools. Okay, So before I get into the other side, I just want to point out that I'm not okay 
with what this guy did at all. Now, what the right side is saying is, okay, first of all, she was told to leave the classroom and give up her phone by a teacher. She refused. An admin came in and gave her the same option, and she refused. The cop came in and gave her the same option, and then she refused. He then said, I'm going to remove you, and as he went to do so, she hit him. Okay? And because of that, that's just she got what she deserved. Right up until the end, that's all true. The last part's opinion. And it's an opinion of somebody that needs to beat themselves in the face and dip their head into a vat of alcohol to shock themselves with enough pain to come out of their freaking state-induced coma. This is, this is not how you handle this, okay? I, I think that most of us, at some point in our lives as adult men, have probably had a child that needed to be physically restrained in our lives. Okay, And yes, the girl was like 16, 17, 18, something like that. She's not a little tiny, but she's a little girl compared to a grown man. And if you've ever had to restrain a child, you know they can be quite strong and temperamental. But I don't think any of us have ever had to take one and grab it by the neck and slam it to the ground and shove it across the floor and kick it and beat it. And if we did, somebody should have beat our freaking asses. Okay? And you know what? I don't care if you're a cop or not. You learn there's certain ways that a man does not physically treat a woman, period, and certainly not a girl. And what this man is, and here's a word I don't use often, okay? This is a word I don't use often. It is a profane word, okay? It's not as bad as the F word. Some of you don't want to hear it, so skip ahead 30 seconds right now so you don't if you don't want to hear because I don't hear any complaints. But what this man is is a pussy. Okay, he is a pussy. He needs someone bigger than him to beat his ass like that, to put him in check and make him realize this is not okay. This is not acceptable. Okay? But here's the jack analysis of this story. This is the one you're not going to hear on TV or radio. Anywhere in mainstream media or probably even alternative media. Because everybody has to push an agenda. We have the agenda that the state's always right and people should obey police officers. And we have the agenda of racism. Then we have the agenda that's like the cop block agenda. And that's the only three angles you're going to get this from. Now, you did get a, a, a reasonable response from the, the, the sheriff that this man serves under. And what he said is, what this girl did was wrong. But what my officer did was completely wrong. And I need a third-party investigation to handle this. I'm not going to touch it with internal affairs. So he, the only person that's made sense out of this whole thing to me so far has been the sheriff under whom this officer serves. And, and, and that's what he basically said. Hey, look, you know, the girl was wrong, but you don't do this. Period. This is a, this is a, a catastrophe. But here's my, spot, here's my response. It should have never happened anyway. This never needed a cop. What this needed was a school that understood how to enforce its own policies and how not to turn something that is a disagreement into violence. All this teacher had to do, if she had any freaking brains, is say, listen, give me your phone. Girl says no. Okay. You know what? You don't want to give me your phone? Then I need you to go down to principal's office and leave. Girl says no, I'm not leaving. Okay. Now, what does the teacher do? The teacher, like a child, runs down to the administrator's office. I can't get here. I can't get her to listen to me. So they, they, they send an administrator. When I was a kid, they sent a principal, a vice principal, or maybe the dean of students, and you didn't have them come. You went to them. Because when you were told to go, you went because you knew you had to go. Okay, The schools lost control of this. So here comes the big administrator, again, whatever the hell that means. For all I know, he's a guidance counselor or something, and says, okay, 
You need to give me your phone. No. Okay, you need to leave now or we're going to get the police. No. Okay, we're going to get the police. Really? This is... These people are entrusted with the education of our children? How about this? If I'm the teacher, I say, I saw you had your phone out. You know the rules. Give me the phone. Now, probably the way I'm going to say it, she's going to give me the phone. But she want to give me the phone? Fine. Okay, fine. You don't want to give me the phone? You don't, you don't want me to take it away for, for the rest of the class period? Okay, you're not supposed to have it anyway. So I need you to go down to principal's office. Oh, you don't want to leave? Oh, that's fine. You can stay there. That's, that's, that's just fine. So you'll have a detention after school today. But, Jack, what if she doesn't show up? Hold on, I'm not done yet, but that's not my problem. That's not my problem. And, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna fix this because it's like, so, so now, here's what we have. We have detention after school today, okay? And you're still going to get up and go. Well, you're not going to get up and go. Oh, so now we have the two days of detention. Yeah? Two days of detention? Yeah. You know what? I, I can see that I'm not getting through to you. How about this? How about what we do? is we make sure that you get a week of in-school suspension. See, that's that's really inconvenient when you're supposed to be hanging around with your friends and all stuff like that. So a week of in-school suspension, if, if you don't get up right now and leave, I'm going to make sure that happens. You could sit there, but I'm going to make sure that happens. Okay, fine, sit there. And then just follow through on it. Follow. You handle the situation outside of the classroom. You handle the situation where you're not in the middle of a confrontation like this. Now, if you have to explain this to a person, to an adult, entrusted with educating teenage children, that this is how you would handle this situation without it leading to violence, they're not qualified to teach your kids. So the problem here is not necessarily the police officer, okay? It, and it's not necessarily the fact that a police officer was involved. It's that the system is set up in a way where a police officer is going to be involved in the first place. How many of us, how many of us that are my age, a little bit older, a little bit younger, grew up where if you ever saw a cop in a school, he was there like for career day, right? Or some kind of crime prevention thing, you know, McGruff, the, the crime fighting dog or whatever. And this is, you know, or stranger danger talk when you were a little kid. But there was no such thing as a school police officer. But Jack, times have changed. No, they haven't. Society's changed. We've become a bunch of freaking wusses. We don't know how to control our children. We don't know how to... And our schools are... The biggest thing, our schools are too big. We have too many people crammed into one building that don't want to be there and don't want to be there with each other. Our schools are too large. Throwing more money won't fix it. Putting more police in there won't fix it. Stricter policies won't fix it. Nothing's going to fix it. The public school system has run its course. It is done. It's in its death throes. These are symptoms of the problem. The teachers, if the teachers can't control the students, what do we need the teachers for? If the schools can't create an environment where this type of thing is not going to happen, period, why do we need the schools? And the answer is they can't and we don't. We don't need this system this way anymore. I'm sure I'll hear from many of you that tell me I'm crazy or whatever, but we're going to go on from there to another one. As we move on, I just want to say one last thing. If I actually could talk to this officer, what I would really legitimately like to ask him in a non-confrontational way, just a, a straight-up way of making my point, how would you like to look your mother in the face while she watched that video? That's all I'll say about that. Anyway, 
uh, let's get some good news. Um, the government didn't necessarily do something right, but they're they're doing less of something wrong. Do you know the government doesn't believe that you have a right to invest your own money in causes that you feel are worth investing in as long as you could possibly get a benefit from doing so? If you want to give me a whole bunch of money to go do something, the government's fine with that. Okay, as long as you don't get anything back, you know. So if I just say, you know, I'm a really great guy, I'd like your money so that I can go start a company and do some things. And you say, okay, Jack, here's my money, and I take your money. It's fine up until the point that I go, hey, you know what? That pay, that paid off. This company's made some money now. Here's a profit. You gave me one percent of the of the of the company's uh, startup. So here's one percent of the profit for the year. That's a dividend. Yeah, we're going to. I'm going to jail if I do that. That's part of why Perma Ethos didn't get done the way it was supposed to be done. Well, in 2012, now, now realize 2015 is almost gone. 2012, the, the the Senate and the House passed the Jobs Act, but there were pieces of it that were left unfinished, and it took them you know, almost four years uh, to get it done. And one was supposed to change that at least a little bit. Well, it's finally been ruled on how it's going to happen and a timeline for when it's going to happen. This is on Inc.com. How the SEC just changed fundraising forever. After more than three years, the SEC on Friday established a final ruling of the Jobs Act, which should soon make equity crowdfunding a legitimate option for small business. Okay, I'm not going to read the article. You read the article yourself if you want to. But let me explain the basics of this. Since about the 1933, when all of the reform came with, you know, like uh, stealing people's gold and uh, reneging on the dollar's value by about, you know, 40% and all of that stuff and trading with the Enemies Act and, you know, telling the states they no longer control the commerce when their own states uh, because it might affect the commerce and all that stuff, right? So one of the other things that happened is to protect the public from unfair investment schemes, all investments that were made by unaccredited investors uh, either had to have a, a prior relationship. So if you and me want to go into business together, that's fine. If you want to just be a financial investor, that's fine. But if I solicit money, that's not okay. Unless I am a publicly traded security, okay, with all this set up from the SEC, okay, Securities and Exchange Commission, and it's very, very expensive to do, and it's completely prohibitive, especially to people starting up new companies that don't have a lot of money, and that's why they're trying to raise funds in the first place. So a lot of people looked at things like Kickstarter and Indiegogo and all these other things as, well, that's, 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 that's what that is, but it's not. It's not. There's a very key difference here you need to understand to understand why this is a big deal. If I want to start a company, we'll just call it XYZ Widgets, and I say, here's my new widget, and it's awesome, and we need money to develop it, and we need to do $100,000 in sales to develop it. That'll give us the money, and we can deliver in 90 days from now, and I put it out on Kickstarter, and you say, I want one of Jack's widgets. In fact, I want 10 of Jack's widgets. They're awesome. So you buy 10 widgets in advance on, on Kickstarter, and then when I make the widget, I send it to you, and all is supposed to be well and good. Well, here's the thing. Um, that money is just sales. It's just pre-sales. That's all that it is. It's not really fundraising. Okay? Not in the business world and what businesses mean when they talk about raising funding capital. And the difference is it's subject to taxation. So let's say I said I want to buy a farm and what I want to do with it is I want to go in and I'm going to buy like this old piece of crap farm for cheap. Just raw land. 
And I'm going to go in and I'm going to put a bunch of swales in, plant a bunch of trees, and basically do the mainframe. And then I'm going to flip that farm and sell it for profit. But it's going to take me two years to get it ready to sell. And I do an Indiegogo or a Kickstarter or some kind of fund, funding for something like that. Uh, and you contribute to it. I have to give you something. I, I can't give you stock or a promise. I have to actually tender something to you. I mean, I can name a tree after you and you buy the tree. You know, having your name on a plaque on it or something. I could do that. But it's still profit. So only legitimate expenses against the profit qualify for deduction, and now I have to pay income tax on all the money that came in. And what this does for somebody that runs a Kickstarter or Indiegogo or whatever, whatever is left of profit, instead of staying in the business so the business can operate, which is operational capital, it has to go to the government. It has to be paid out. So when we did basically our own private Kickstarter for Permaethos, and we sold a thousand PDCs, and everybody said, wow, look at all that money they capitalized. Half of it, half of it ended up in the hands of the government, which is why I never wanted to do it that way, but it was the only way we could get it done. So we bit the bullet and said, hey, if we give a thousand people a PDC, that's great. And if we can make something out of that, that's great. And we did some pretty good stuff with it so far. And we're still working on doing more. Some really cool stuff is coming soon. We're hush-hush for now because we want to have it all ready to go. I have gotten weary with saying, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. I want to go, we're doing this now. Here it is. Okay, so some cool stuff's coming. But imagine if half of that money didn't go to the government. How much further along things with Permaethos would be? Or anybody that you've ever seen on Kickstarter or You know, Indiegogo or whatever. For people that are new, Permaethos is a company that I am a majority partner in uh, that does really cool stuff in permaculture and regenerative agriculture. Just leave it at that for now. So what I wanted to do when I came up with the idea for Permaethos, I wanted to buy a piece of land. And I wanted people to buy into that and get their own acre on that piece of land. And then there was going to be, call it a maintenance fee, a lease fee. We call it a 99-year lease on that acre. So you bought the option on the acre, and then you paid a lease on it. This created recurrent revenue. And then the property would be commonly developed for the good of all. And any profit that the property could earn, whether it was through agriculture or, say, we set aside 10 acres to make it into a campground. And we charge people to camp there. And then that creates a job on the property, and then the, the profit from that gives into a pool, and that goes to further develop the property, and at any such time that we decide collectively as owners, we all decide, hey, let's pay out a dividend based on the shares that you hold as you bought into the property. And I thought this was a good idea, and I thought I'd worked a way around it, and at Perma uh, Culture Voices 1, a man who worked for the SEC that likes this show and likes what I do, walked up to me and said, Jack... I want to be. I want to tell you the truth. If you do this, they're going to put you in federal prison. Don't do this. And I was like, well, I wasn't just going to do it. I was going to talk to a lawyer. And he's like, if you talk to a lawyer and the lawyer tells you this is okay, get a new lawyer. I'm telling you flat out, this is what I do for a living. I work for these people. I wouldn't want to do it, but if it came across my desk, I'd have to process the paperwork, and that would lead to an investigation that if you did what you say you want to do, no matter how upfront you've been with people about it, you're going to federal prison. This new regulation is a way to get around that. It's the government coming forward and saying, here's a way you can do this. Now, there's some rules. So I'm going to read a little bit to you. Small, so the first question is, well, how much can I raise? Small businesses will be able to raise up to $1 million during a 12-month period 
from unaccredited investors. That's most people listening to this show. If you don't have a net worth of $2 million or some other certain things, uh, annual income exceeding $225,000 or something like that, there's certain things that make you accredited, and basically it's you have money. Okay, So if you don't have a lot of money, you're an unaccredited investor. Let me continue to read, though. They will, however, have to submit an informal audit and produce documentation that describes investor and financial risk, says Georgia Quinn of Ellison Grossman Skull of New York City-based law firm that specializes in securities law. The real power and excitement of this is it creates a new channel for businesses that are starved of capital, Quinn said, adding the average small business can raise, the average of small business can raise is probably $170,000. So there's going to be some paperwork, and there should be. If you're taking somebody's money, you should have what you would call a prospectus for them. The question is going to be, what are the requirements? Am I going to have to spend $50,000 to have a prospectus drawn up, or can I do a basic business acumen prospectus and say, this is my business plan, this is projections, this is worst case, this is best case, this is what complete failure looks like, this is what a home run looks like, here's my best guess at chances of success, and the reality is this could all fail and you could lose every dime of your money. Is that going to be enough? Because if it is, great. How much can investors invest? This is where they still have some pretty big strings into this. In any 12-month period, accredited investors will be able to invest $2,000, unaccredited, up to $2,000, or up to 5% of their income if they make less than $100,000 in company shares. Investors with annual income or net worth of more than $100,000 can invest up to 10% of their income, up to $100,000, An unaccredited investor generally has less than $1 million in liquid assets and earns less than $200,000 annually. Um, here's where it gets a little interesting, how to sell, sell shares. Sales will be handled via regulated funding portals that act as gatekeepers, vetting instruments and providing critical investment information to investors. In hearing today, the SEC suggests the primary model would be Internet portals such as those that already exist in the crowdfunding world. Investors should, in theory, be able to sell those shares to secondary markets as Inc. has previously reported. So basically it means you could go sell your shares to anybody that wanted to buy them through uh, an off-exchange stock exchange, okay? Basically, there's what you'd call over-the-counter stock exchanges that sell these types of private securities without the tremendous amount of SEC oversight, etc. And there's concern by the SEC there's just not enough liquidity in that market that you may want to sell your shares. You may have complete rights to sell your shares. I might say, well, you bought uh, 100 shares, and you bought them for uh, $5 a piece, And that was 500 bucks. And right now, the share value, according to the Blackmore, the Blackmore uh, uh, formula, and it might actually be true, is uh, instead of a uh, dollar a share, is $4 a share. But when you go to sell it, there'll be no one to buy it. It's true. It's okay. Look at the size of the investment we're talking about here. Four, when will it kick in? The new rules will move Federal Register as an official notice for 60 days where it's possible, although unlikely, they could be legally challenged, Quinn says. Title III will then be enacted six months later, according to SEC. So basically eight months from now. So it took them three and a half, four years to get off their ass and do this, and now we have to wait almost another year for it. But you know what? I don't have a problem with that. Because if you're going to use this, you probably need a good six months to get your shit straight, to get your business plan, to draw up your pers even if you could do it all individually and just have it, you know, checked over by an attorney or what have you. Okay, e even if that's the case, the, the this is a serious thing, and I think that's what people have to realize. Because I already I put it out on Facebook that I said this could be a game changer for regenerative agriculture. It's just one example. 
And here's this you know farm flipping model that you could do. And the way you get around the limits is every time you decide you're going to do a farm or a land development or whatever, you create a company for that one thing. So you create a holding company, Regenerative Agriculture Holdings LLP. And then that holding corporation sets up a company, uh, Virginia 1779 Land Development Corp, C Corp. And then that corporation is what does the fundraising. You could do that. That's fine. But it doesn't mean you should. It doesn't mean you should, because you have to understand what this actually means. So this is not, this is not investor debt. This is investor equity. What I mean, you're not issuing a bond against your company. You're not saying, okay, uh, I want funding for this, and I'll pay the money back plus 10% interest over five years and do that with private people. By the way, that's illegal, too, unless it's done in a very specific way, and that's actually really hard. But what you're saying is we're creating this company, and here's our prospectus, and here's our business plan, and this is what we're doing, okay? And we're going to take this money, and we're going to translate it into this type of an asset structure, And these are the people that are owners in the company now. And we've set aside equity, say 25% of the company's equity. And we're going to sell those shares. And then the ownership, me and myself and Irene, right, we're going to retain the 75% equity. Which means all the people that put money in the kitty are now owners. They have equity in your company, which means they have certain rights as shareholders, like voting. Now, of course, you can issue non-voting shares, but I don't know how that's going to work with this. And it wouldn't even matter because if you only sold 25% of your equity off, okay, then the 75% of you could easily outvote your, your measly percent shareholders. But what if your company hits a home run? What if your company hits a home run and you're like, I want to sell this company? So you go to somebody like Mark Cuban and say, hey, Mark, buy this. And he goes, yeah, I'll buy that for uh, half a billion dollars. Well, your shareholders get 25% of that money. That may or may not be a problem. It probably isn't with that kind of money. But what if it's a couple million bucks and you've got that much tied up in the company and the investors take just enough out to where you're shirtless at the end of it? You don't have that sellout exit strategy quite as strong as you used to. And the more you sell, the more you raise. But the more you sell and raise, the more you give up. What about another thing? Think of Shark Tank. Have you ever watched Shark Tank? People go in and talk to guys like Mark Cuban and Kevin the Jerk guy and whatever these other people are. And uh, Barbara the real estate chick and whatever. Okay, And one of the big things that always comes up when they're interested in the business proposition is, so you have 100% equity in this company? Oh, no. We've already sold off 20% of it. To who? You know, Somebody like yourself, another shark, a, a venture capitalist. A lot of times they go, whoa. Well, I'm only playing with 80% here, and I want a piece of that. So if you're looking eventually to bring in big fish investors, you've, you've, you've cut the pie. Now, you can always go to your shareholders and say, who wants to sell out? But who wants to sell out when somebody like that's getting involved? That's why I got in this. So none of this is bad. But I can see people already getting starry-eyed. Oh, I'm going to run my next Kickstarter this way. Probably not. The guy that sent me this email says, it's going to allow existing crowdfunding sites like Kickstarter to do this. That's not what I read here. This is platforms like StartEngine. This is not pre-selling your DVD. This is actually setting up a share value in the company, setting aside a portion of equity, and selling a part of your company. 
you, you, you this is this is serious. But what an amazing opportunity for people that, that grab onto it and understand it and market what they're doing well and put together solid business plans and go to the public and say, hey, this is our plan. I don't know whether I'll be able to make this happen or not. I'm pretty freaking worn out right now, guys, just to be honest with you. But I'm telling you, if people started doing this and like, you know, you could buy a share in a farm for like a hundred bucks. I can see myself buying, you know, a thousand dollars worth of property a hundred times over 10 years and having little pieces of farm all over the country. Now there's another side to this, right? So if those businesses sell, then you have a, you have an ownership. You get a piece of that. That has to happen, right? That has to, you can't sell a company and not compensate your fellow owners equitably across the sale price. If you if you put 20% of your shares out there and they're held by one person or 20 people or 200 people and you sell the company outright and it's no longer yours and all the shares are bought by the person on the other end of it and you exit and you let's say you sold it for a million dollars, 200,000 is going to that 20%. Okay, so that's your that's your payout as an investor in most companies like this because most of these companies don't pay out dividends because the whole point is to keep the capital in the company so the company's operational. So this isn't like ExxonMobil where every quarter you get a dividend check for you know a couple pennies on the share. It can be you can set up a company to run any way that you want. You can say by contract with your shareholders in advance ten percent of all profits are distributed as dividends equitably across the shareholder base, and majority shareholders vote on extra dividends. A lot of companies do that now, even in the public space. The, the companies that pay dividends don't always pay a dividend, and they don't always pay out a specific amount of dividend. They look at the company's needs. What do we need to do next year? How much of our profit is really in surplus? We'll distribute that as a dividend. Then we're not taxed on it. Then the owners, well, actually, you are taxed on it. The company pays a tax on the profit prior to distribution as a dividend. Most people don't know that. Most people don't know that. That's why structures like LLPs and LLCs exist to pass the income through directly to the shareholders so it's only taxed once. See, and if you don't understand what I'm saying, you're not ready for something like this. As an investor or as a person drawing up the contract and seeking investment. But there's a lot of potential here. And there may be a potential in the future to do something that's more co-op-like in nature with my original vision of Permaethos. But I don't have the mental bandwidth for that right now. But it's the mind is working on that, guys. But the big thing here is I see this creating hundreds if not thousands of new successful businesses. The, the, and that's what our economy needs right now because the big companies are kind of wearing it out and they're also heading headlong full into automation. So this is good news. I'll put a link to the full article if you want to read it. So some other big news out economically, the city of Barcelona, Spain, is talking about launching its own uh, digital currency, a Bitcoin-like currency from Barcelona, the city. Barcelona City Council is reportedly working to launch its own digital currency in the next six months, according to reports from El País, one of Spain's leading national newspaper. I believe that means, if my Spanish is still current, the country. 
Uh, Mayor Andrew Kaluhu's government is hoping the digital currency will stimulate locally, local commerce. Though it remains unclear whether the proposed currency is strictly cryptocurrency, the council has said the users will be able to store their holdings in mobile wallets and exchange them into fiat. In addition, civil workers will be able to receive part of their salary in the new digital currency. Businesses in the area will also be able to apply for digital currency microcredits for the city council. Fernando Restoy, the deputy governor of Spain's Central Bank, said while he knew little about the project, he did not like the proposal. I think it's impossible as well as undesirable, he said. Gee, a central banker thinks it's impossible to have a digital currency, and it's, it's, it's also undesirable. The proposal comes after the New Economics Foundation, independent economic think tank, said Scotland should consider creating its own digital currency, the Scott Pound. Coindesk reached out to Ada Kalu's party for comment, but no reply had been received by press time. Um, my analysis of this is the world continues to miss the whole point of digital currencies. So Barcelona wants to do this. The central bank goes, I don't think it's possible. So Bitcoin doesn't exist? Bitcoin doesn't Well, Bitcoin exists, but, I mean, the city can't do it. So some unknown people just create a protocol and float it, and then it turns into Bitcoin. And people from all over the world contribute to its management in the form of mining and verifying transactions and sharing computing power. And it transforms the world where the government eventually says, okay, it's real, we don't like it, but we'll allow it. In fact, you can contribute to uh, political campaigns with Bitcoin now, by the way. You can pay taxes on it, etc. And they issued rules for that, which was an acknowledgement that it's here to stay, basically. Um, so uh, random people all over the world can do it, but a city can't do it because he doesn't understand it. He doesn't, And if he does understand it, the second word tells you it's undesirable. For, for, for currency to be democratically based, and, and democracy gets a bad rap, especially among anarchists like myself, because, well, in many ways it deserves it, but there's different types of democracy. There's democracy of willing participation, and then there is what we've been told is freedom, but what is actually is democracy of coercion. So democracy of willing participation is democratically, there, here's a value proposition. And we can judge how valid it is by how many people voluntarily participate in it. And it's for those people that want to be part of it. And those that don't are left over by themselves. And if enough people participate, pretty soon sure it gets pretty lonely in being a non-participator. But still, you're right. So then you go find something else to do with yourself, some other way to solve that problem. Or you say, you know what? 99% of the people are probably not wrong. I'm going to go be part of that. But the democracy that we, we talk about when we talk about freedom and democracy is not freedom at all. It's democracy of coercion, which is since... 51% of us want something. The other 49% of you are supposed to shut up and accept it. But we have a republic where individual rights are, yeah, you really believe that? If that was true, just down the road from me in the town of Lakeside, there wouldn't be a man who was just told by police officers, sir, your car is parked illegally. You must move it. You know where his car was parked? On his own grass, on his own property, more than 30 feet from the road because a neighbor complained. If... 
if we had individual protection of rights, it's not an HOA either, this is a city police officer, if we had individual protection of rights, that couldn't happen. But because the 51% or more said it can happen, then the state can use force to make it happen. That's democracy of coercion. The point of digital currencies is voluntary democracy. That's the point. And it doesn't matter if it's Barcelona. It doesn't matter if it's Ecuador, which keeps talking about it. And please, Ecuador, make me right and do it so I can say a country finally did it. It doesn't matter if it is a country. And it doesn't matter if that country creating that digital currency is just so they can have a full accounting and taxation of its people. Because by them doing it, it acknowledges the fact that you and I can do it too. We can create, if we want to, tomorrow, Valcoin in honor of Val. Survive Val, the guy on the Survival Podcast website with the headphones and glasses that all these other big companies keep ripping off his image. I don't know why, but they do. Um, like this little small, I'm a small guy here. Do you really need it? Can you come up with something original? I mean, I came up with him in 2008. Please leave him alone, all you big companies. But whatever, it doesn't, I'm not going to be launching lawsuits over or anything. But I could create the Val coin. A little digital symbol would have Val's head on it. Maybe we'll do it. Why not? Maybe I should do it just to prove that we can do it. Okay, and then everybody in the TSP universe, the TSP nation, can say we're going to trade goods and services in Valcoin, and we can just do that. It really is that simple. Because money is not money, the economy has value, and money is nothing but a symbol of that value. The value in money comes from the value of the producers. In the economy and the value we place on each other, that's where it comes from. And the world continues to miss this. By now, there should be thousands and thousands of digital currencies that aren't just another way to game Bitcoin. We got Duckcoin and Dogecoin and whatever, and uh, Litecoin and this and that. And it, but it's all about well, what does that trade in Bitcoin and? What is Bitcoin trend in dollars? And can we create these exchanges and money systems and games and gambling? No, that's what the central bankers do. That's not what this is supposed to be. This is supposed to be me and you looking at each other and saying, hey, uh, I want to buy a whole bunch of seed from you so I can plant my farm. And you say to me, uh, okay, what do you got? And I say, well, uh, I got a broom full of books. You want any of my books? You go, I don't like books. I go, well, I... I I, I've got a, oh, I don't know, uh, I've got some reloading equipment. Yeah, I don't shoot, I don't want that, I, or I already have it. Uh, I got a whole bunch of uh, uh, extra food for my dogs. You want some dog meat? I don't want that. And I don't have nothing you want. So I say, well, I got, I got money. You know, okay, well, it took you so long, and I give you dollars. Instead of doing that, that we have our own system of accounting, and I say, I want this seed, and you say, I want uh, 20 Val coins. And I go, okay, here. And when that actually becomes liberating is when we stop worrying about, well, what does Valcoin equal in dollars? Or what does Valcoin equal in Bitcoin? When the economy that it's being circulated in is strong enough, that there's a separation, then you have something. And let me tell you something, guys. You'll say it's not true, but Bitcoin already did this. It's already happened for Bitcoin. Yes, they still calculate it in dollars, but think about the fact that it came out as being a fraction of a dollar. And it was big news when Bitcoin hit dollar parity. And now Bitcoin trades at $351.90 with remarkable stability in that mid-$300 range over the last two years. You know why? 
because people stopped going back to dollars. The big retailers that are taking Bitcoin now, that's what they do. right? They take your Bitcoin and they go right to dollars. But the average user, they don't trade their Bitcoin. They don't get rid of their Bitcoin. They're holding Bitcoin. And when you're buying something in Bitcoin, they might still be figuring out the price in dollars because that's how we still think. But the reality is they're valuing the Bitcoin above the dollar. They're valuing the Bitcoin above the dollar. Because they're starting to value the other side of the transaction. And that's the point of virtual currencies. The point of virtual currencies has been said removing the middleman. Removing the central banks. But people don't really understand that. There's multiple middlemen. Because there's the government. The government wants a tax. And there's all these layers of financing between you and the other side. And there's this disproportionate value system. Because the government says what minimum wage is, and the government says what the inflation rate is, and the government says this, and the government says that, and the bank says this, and the bank says that. Our entire value of money is all screwed up. We've started to see it is, is this thing worth five bucks? We're in a true economy of democracy, a voluntary democracy. What I want to know is, Am I tendering to you sufficient value for what you're giving me? Not, are you giving me something worth what I'm giving you? You see how it works the other way around. In other words, am I being fair as a buyer? And you think that's totally crazy talk. That sounds like liberal yaya-ness or whatever. No, it's not. No, it's not. And let me tell you how you know it's not. Let's say that you had a good friend. And that good friend was selling a barbecue grill. And your friend's kind of dumb. He doesn't know what barbecue grills sell for. He he has this barbecue grill sitting in his garage. It was given to him some time ago. He's never used it much. It's like brand new. It's like a $1,000 grill. And you know if he threw that thing on Craigslist for 600 bucks, that he'd have it sold in a day. And he's your friend and you care about him. And he says, hey, you want to buy my grill? And you're like, man, I've had my eye on that grill for a long time. wonder why you didn't use it. I don't really like grills. I'll sell it to you for uh, 50 bucks. Are you going to do that to your friend? Are you going to do that to your friend? Are you going to be like, dude, let me, let me tell you what you got there. Right? Okay. You go to a, a, a garage sale and that grill sitting there with a sign that says 50 bucks on it. You got it in the back of your car, $50 handed to the person, and you're down the road without even thinking about it if you're not attached to that person. But if you stop and talk to the person running the garage sale, and it's a lady, and she says, yeah, uh, my dad's in a home now. And we're selling everything to get rid of it and so that we can pay for what he needs. Ma'am, let me tell you about this grill you're selling for $50. You, you don't need to be selling this for $50. This is a $1,000 grill. You could put a $500 price tag on it. And even if you don't buy it, you're not going to take advantage of that person. As soon as you have the connection to the seller and value them as an individual, the competition goes down. And what do I have that's worthy of this comes to a head. That's where digital currencies will lead us if we'll allow them to. It's not liberal yayaness. It's human nature. It's human nature. And let me tell you who the person is that would take the grill from their friend for 50 bucks. Or hear that lady explain the situation the family's in and take that grill for 50 bucks. You're a psychopath. You don't get to play this game. Because, done properly, 
What will happen with digital currencies is not only will your net worth in digital currency be something that can be disclosed, but your trustworthiness. The power of the review. Amazon, eBay, Angie's List. Eventually, we will have currencies that have a built-in trust value in the person you're exchanging with. And when I look at you and your trust value is really high, and I want my trust value to continue to go up so it starts to become more and more valuable, my my one Valcoin is actually worth more than somebody else's because mine has a trust value with it, Okay, then I'm going to want to make sure that I do fair and equitable dealings with this person. This is a free market. When you hear the free market has failed, you've never seen a free market. You don't, society has never in living history seen a true free market. We've not really had the technology to have on a large scale a true global free market until now. This is the technology. This is what nobody's telling you. Now, I'm not saying this is all going to happen in the next five days, right? Or the next five years, or even in the next 15 years. I don't know how long it's going to take. But this is the progression of a digital currency. Can you imagine a digital currency that does what I just said? Bitcoin 5.0 or something like that. And you can make a Valcoin. And it carries with it the trust factor of the person currently holding it. And as it passes from one trusted hand to another, it increases its value because it has increased trust. It's completely the opposite of a debt-based money system. It's a value-based money system. It's not a, you know, people are throwing around like resource-based economy. Let me tell you the problem with a resource-based economy. Somebody gets to decide how much of everything you're entitled to, and that person ain't you. That's the problem with the resource-based economy concept. That there's no earning of value. But what if we earn our value through trust? What if we earn our value through delivering what we promised? What do we, what if we earn our value in keeping our word? What if we earn our value in the quality of our product? That's how the free market's supposed to work. The reason you'll pay more for Tom's, I don't know, knife than Frank's knife is because Tom makes a better knife. But how do you really know that other than Tom and, and, and Frank's marketing? Well, you can listen to what customers say, but that can be rigged. And what if it's intrinsically built into the transaction? That the system literally requests your satisfaction upon the completion of the transaction. Just like a restaurant does when you pay your bill now and they say, here's our survey. What if it was much simpler? What if it was much simpler? What if we created a monetary system through digital currency where the most intrinsically honest and hardworking people, by the nature of the system, attain the greatest wealth? So that there was a financial incentive to be honest and trustworthy and deliver what you promised. Well, that's what we have now. I don't know what world you're living in because that's not the world I live in. right? You have the CEO of Volkswagen coming out going, yeah, we cheated, we're sorry. You caught us. Fine us and we'll pay it. That's basically the whole thing out of Volkswagen when they got caught for tinkering with the the uh, uh, the emissions. Was like there was none of this. Oh, I'm investigating it to find out what happened and where it went wrong. No, the, the the CEO of Volkswagen said, "Yeah, we did it. We'll pay the fine. Why? Because 
It was financially beneficial, even with the fine. The billions of dollars in fines, they're still going to come out ahead. They calculated in advance. They're Germans. They're good at that. They know numbers. Our system is actually rigged to the people that are the most willing to compromise integrity can attain the greatest wealth. Not at the mid-tier. No, make sure you don't misunderstand that. At, at the level you and I operate, it is the honest and trustworthy people that do the best. But there's a cap on that shit. And if you want to move into the place where you start like issuing the currency and controlling who gets it and sell it into circulation, all that stuff, yeah, yeah. The people that make the most money on Wall Street are mildly psychopathic. Mildly. Because they're fully psychopathic, they screw up. They have to have a little bit of brain damage. The best investors have a little bit of brain damage. Because when they make a profit and it causes somebody to be hurt, they don't really care. They have no empathy. That's just the way it is. We could change that with digital currencies. And again, every time I read about Bitcoin, digital currencies, at every level, no one ever understands this. Because if we build that, and I think it's part of you know uh, what... Xavier Hawk has talked about doing with permacredits. It's at least what he, one of his goals is to kind of head in that direction. But I don't even know if he gets it really at the level I'm talking about it today. That wealth is based intrinsically upon honesty, trustworthiness, keeping your word, and delivering what you promise. That the more a person does that, whether they do it on a big level, selling cars, or a small level, fixing toilets. Their wealth is literally enhanced by being honest and trustworthy and delivering what they promise. That's democracy of monetary system on a voluntary basis. Just how I see it. And it would be, honest to God, whether you're getting it or not, I know I'm sticking on this one a while, a complete reversal of the way modern economics works today. A complete reversal. Because there's plenty of honest, hardworking, trustworthy people that never build wealth and not because, well, they just can't handle money. Because what they do isn't valued enough. Because the person on the other end of the equation can't afford to value it that much. I have to be able to put more value on my car than I do on my toilet. And I've separated myself from the individual on the other end of the transaction due to perceived scarcity. There's no scarcity of money because money's not real. It's fictitious. It's fake. It's a game. It's a gimmick. That's the point of digital currencies. If they can create one, not only can we create one too, but we could create a better one. In fact, it's been done. Bitcoin is better than dollars in every way you can measure it. In every way. Um, let's stick with money and let's talk about 401k plans and something a listener's reporting. Um, of course, I've told you in the past that your 401k plans have been stripped of cash options, forcing billions and billions of dollars into U.S. federal government debt, which is another way they're stopping the hole. I won't rehash all that out today. Just understand what I just said is true. Uh, it says, hi, Jack. Just want to send you a couple of quick comments. A week or so ago, I moved my 401k investments as close to cash as the plan allowed. 
Lo and behold, Fidelity kindly sent me the following afterward. Quote, your mix, your investment mix appears to be off track because it may be too conservative for your age based on your current stock holdings. The more conservative your portfolio, the less likely you will be positioned to take full advantage of market upswing. We can help you look at ways to address this. That was sure nice of them, wasn't? Heaven forbid they simply let me manage my money in the way that I choose. And uh, the second comment I'll read real quick. Second, Mai Tai Coffee's one stand up bunch of people. I ordered 10 pounds of coffee, patiently waited for it to arrive. A little over a week later, it showed up on my doorstep with a note attached, letting me know they're sorry it took so long to get my coffee. And as a thank you for my patience, an extra pound of coffee and a mug were included. I hadn't even noticed it had been that long. Yeah, that's Mai Tai Coffee. Just awesome. Um, back to the other thing, though. Ugh. So what Fidelity is saying is, hey, look, you're too young to be conservative with your money. As though that should be the guiding factor as to whether or not to be conservative with your money, how old you are. And the reasoning goes like this. Well, you can afford to take losses, so you stay in for bigger risks because then you get bigger gains. Well, not when you have big losses. See, I want to just use this to illustrate one of the greatest lies told to investors by financial liars, I mean advisors. No, actually, I do mean financial liars. At the consumer level, the people that work with people that put away a couple hundred dollars a month. You know, the people that work with people that have an investment portfolio of $200,000, $300,000 in their 40s, you know. People like that. People like you and me. The financial liar says, let me show you something. Since you're worried about the stock market going down this year. And they'll show you a chart, and it will have real honest numbers on it. And it will show every major dip in the market. And it will show that the year or the second year after, the biggest rises in the market have occurred, like clockwork. Sure, the market went down 45% here, but look at this. Next year, it went up 53%. Yeah, you're in the hole with that number, buddy. You really are. And it's very misleading because we don't know. Because we teach people common core math and advanced algebra and calculus now, but we don't teach them basic common sense mathematics. Here's what I mean. If you have a stock that drops in value by 50%, for you to get back to where you were, it has to go up by 100%. Don't believe me? Fine. I sell you one share of stock for $100. It declines in value by 50%. What is it worth now? I don't need to play Jeopardy music. Everybody can do that math. That's why I picked $100. $50. Bucks, okay? Okay, you ready? Okay. Your stock is now worth $50. It goes up by 50%. How much is it worth now? <gasps> Wait a minute. $75. How did that happen? That's how math works. That's how math works. So when you see the market went down by 53% and then went up by 60%, you're still in a hole. Why don't they tell you that? Because it's all a game. This is what I'm talking about. Wealth in this system gravitates toward the predatory. It does not gravitate toward the honest. It doesn't mean you can't be honest and become wealthy. It means the natural flow of money is to the people that run and rig the system. And that what you have to do to be able to become wealthy in this system isn't just be in it and be intrinsically who and what you are. You have to then understand the flow and expend energy to change the flow back to yourself to succeed where others fail. That's the good part of it, because it does lead to people working really, really hard and doing some amazing things. The problem is so many people end up feeling like it's not worth it. 
Why am I going to go through all this effort to establish a business, bust my ass, and, 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 and crank out a business making a hundred grand a year in profit when I'm behind if I just stayed an employee made 70? By the time I pay for all the things I have to pay for is self-employed and the taxes and additional taxes and everything else, if I was an employee making 70, I'd be ahead. Big time. And it's so hard. It takes a special kind of person that says, yeah, but it's worth it. Because that's not where I'm going to stop. And I'm going to create a system that allows me to live my life on my own terms. And it takes a person that's trustworthy and honest with high integrity plus is willing to do that to be in this system and be successful. Because the flow of wealth is in the opposite direction of that. And you have to create such a wake with your effort that you draw it in. And that's not metaphysical. That's just metaphorical. That's just how it works. Those that are really, really good at what they do and are really, really dedicated and are smart about how they do it can be successful in this economy. But it's, it's become the exception when it should be the rule. And it's this type of thing. Because do you, why do you think Steve, who sent me this email, is being conservative right now? Does it have anything to do with his age? Or does it have to do with, he listens to this show, and I've said, there's no upside to the stock market in 2015. So there's no reason to have your money at risk right now. Now, <laughs> here's the thing. I said, the system is designed to draw wealth to the dishonest. okay, Which means people in the system who even would want to be honest cannot, if that's true. That's how you would know I'm telling you the truth. Okay, Fidelity can't be honest with Steve. Because if Fidelity were to say publicly, you know, there is no upside to the market in 2015. There, there is no reason for you to have your money at risk right now. Everybody would... What would happen to the stock market? Since it's not based on value, and instead is based on speculation, it would implode. It would absolutely implode. Could you see a Fox Business analyst came out and said that? Right? Or CNN Money? Like their top guy that everybody listens to every day came out and said, My analysis of the stock market and equities market right now is that there's no real upside of 2015. We... We could see a return as high as 2.5% by the end of the year, but that's it. That's as much as you could possibly expect. And there's significant risks that it could be considerably down. Therefore, it just makes no sense to be holding securities right now. I would go to cash. Boom! Bottom out of the stock market the next second. Everything's destroyed. The system does not allow those who actually influence it to be honest with you. And it's so bad that now they can't only, they can not only just not be honest with you, they have to actively sucker you back in. I guarantee you what's going on here, Fidelity and all these other mutual funds anticipates people being worried right now and on their way out they have a computer that's tripped. Just an algorithm that says, hey, Johnny's about to jump off the ledge. Let's get us a, 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 a suicide preventionist out there and talk him back in. Yeah. And I guarantee you, all the financial liars, the guys that have individual relationships with their customers, they have a little trip button, too, that if, they, if Johnny goes in and does it all by himself, doesn't ask, just goes in and says, ah, I'm going to rebalance this and I'm going to go do that, did they... Hey, Johnny, what's wrong, man? I, I noticed you just, hey, you're so young. That, I mean, every time I talk to a financial advisor about being conservative, you know what they say? Jack, you're so young. 
And I just say, you're so stupid. Like, what? What? That's insulting. Now, what does my youth have to do with understanding the current risk in the market? How can you be a financial advisor if that's your guide to how much I should be at risk right now? Shouldn't my risk be relative to the potential reward in the next six months, 12 months, versus a conservative approach and simply waiting for a better opportunity? Well, that's trading. No, trading is trading stocks every single day. That's trading. All we're talking about there is common sense conservative investing. What we've been told common sense conservative investing is now it's a bunch of mutual funds. So you're well diversified. That way you get your ass kicked in every sector when the economy tanks. But what do I know? I'm just a redneck duck farmer. Let's take another one. I should call this story Glenn Beck's Perception Bias to a degree because I share some bias here because I too am a Texan. And I do think if the United States economy completely takes a bath and uh, we have like the dollar just smashed to oblivion, that Texas is in one of the best positions possible to make a go of it on its own. But the reasoning here doesn't add up. It doesn't pass math. So let me read it to you, and then I'll explain why it doesn't work. How Texas could be uniquely prepared if the U.S. dollar collapses. This is on TheBlaze.com, which, of course, is owned by Glenn Beck. That's why I say it's Glenn Beck's perception bias. In the event the U.S. dollar collapses, the state of Texas could be prepared with its own currency, according to an expert. KTRH reported that Texas has been quietly preparing in case the dollar collapses, especially as China works to make the, 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 the yen the default currency. According to KTRH, Texas has been establishing the first state-run bullion depository after Republican Governor Greg Abbott signed the legislation in June. Quote, If we don't have foreign buyers for our debt, that leaves the American public in the Federal Reserve, and that is a certain recipe for financial disaster. End quote. Kevin Freeman, founder and chairman of the National Security Investment Consulate Institute, told KTRH, Quote, when that happens, the dollar will lose its status as a primary reserve currency. And if that happens, or when that happens, it's going to be very hard for the U.S. to pay its bills. And quote, Freeman continued. Freeman said, Texas's state-run bullion depository is the kind of steps necessary in order to, quote, in order, quote, to issue constitutionally allowed Texas currency, end quote. After the announcement of the bullion depository, Abbott also announced that the state would repatriate about $1 billion in gold from New York to Texas. Quote, I would like to see this all come together so we can become a commodities hub for the continent. State Representative Giovanni Calperlone, Republican, told the Texas Tribune, I think we're just perfectly situated. A billion dollars? One billion dollars is coming back to Texas in the form of gold so that we can run our economy in Texas on a gold-based economy. That sounds like a great idea. And a billion dollars, man, that's, that's a lot of money. What's the size of the Texas economy? $1.414 trillion. $1.414 trillion. $1.414 trillion. We're going to put a billion dollars of gold into our gold depository so we can issue our own currency in an economy that trades, in 2013, by the way, $1.414 trillion. 
if we wanted to do a 10% reserve currency, so and, and that's not constitutional, by the way, we would have to issue gold for the money or silver for the money. That's how the Constitution reads. We have to have gold and silver. But if we said, you know what, screw you, screw you guys, we're going to Texas, and we did it anyway, okay, and said, we're just going to do this, and you guys can go pound sand up in Washington, D.C. In fact, maybe we're going to be the Republic of Texas again, and you got your own problems right now because your dollar collapsed, so ha-ha, and you're on your own, and we're just going to go do this. And we just said, we're going to do a 10% reserve. We're going to issue Texas dollars on a 10% gold reserve standard. To run the economy, we would need how much in reserve, ladies and gentlemen? $141.4 billion. So a billion dollars of gold is about yeah, a little more than a third of a percent of the gold we would need in there. Now, it's not actually that bad. It's not actually that bad, because once we issue money... It circulates through the economy, you see, right? So what's the solution here? Put a bunch of gold away to give confidence to people and then do a digital currency based on it. The text coin, maybe, I don't know. Maybe even build value into it. You know what? I, I, I would love to have the perception bias to say that my state is run by freedom-loving individuals. And you can see that in our legal system here in Texas. It's so much better than places like... California, New York, and while it may be better, it's not that great. See, I've said this before. When, when people say the United States is the best country in the world for fill in the blank, even if it's true, so sometimes it's not, but even if it's true, it doesn't mean it's good enough. I remember when I used to work for Fluke Networks, and we would point out problems in our own equipment that our customers were complaining about, and management would say, well, you know, Your competitors have a bigger problem than that. They're worse. And I'm like, so my value proposition to my client is, we're not as bad as Agilent. I mean, really, that's the mentality. That's the mentality. As long as you're not as bad as somebody else, you're good enough. D do you see why the monetary system's so jacked up? Because that's exactly how it works right now. The best of the worst is still the best. The best of the worst is still the best. And, and, and we're into a position now with our economic system where we can't fix it with gold. Those of you that think we can fix it with gold, it cannot be done. It cannot be done. And if it is, the bankers have a lot more gold than Texas does. The bankers are flush with gold. They crammed that away a long time ago, guys. Does that mean I oppose this move by the state of Texas? No. I mean, if they're going to do something, it might as well be somewhat useful. And this could be useful as one piece of saying there's a certain amount of equity in this state. And if there's going to be a, you know, because we're not going to have a monetary system like I envision, not from a government anyway. That's the last thing a government wants. How do you control people when the most honest and trustworthy people in society have wealth naturally flow towards them and the most dishonest have wealth naturally flow away from them. Okay? <laughs> Think of politicians, so that won't work for government. So if they're going to try to reestablish some sort of a currency or some sort of a stopgap during a financial crisis, this is a positive move. But it, 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 it doesn't mean that we are positioned perfectly, as this article would lead you to believe. Uh, far from it. Far from it. Now, 
if you told me, Jack, the state of Texas has created a gold depository with uh, about $800 billion in gold reserves, and their plan is to run a gold-backed currency, if the shit hits the fan, I'd say, wow, wow, holy shit, I'm glad I live here. Wow, that's amazing. But uh, that's that's just not the case. I would like to know what the actual gold reserves going into this depository are. Just because they're repatriating a billion dollars doesn't mean that's all there is, but I've been able to, unable to find any additional gold going in this thing. So if you can find it for me, please let me know. Send that to jack at the survivalpodcast.com and put TSPC in the subject line at something like more gold and I'll know that it's about more gold. Let's, I think I got one or two more and we'll wrap up for the day. Actually, I've got one more and it's about producing comfrey from seed and it's a totally different thing and therefore it will be a great one to close up on. It says, hello Jack, I have a question about starting comfrey seeds. Me and my wife. I believe that's supposed to be my wife and I, dude. My wife and I have decided to grow our own comfrey plants to harvest leaves for our own salve. When I purchased the seeds, I kept seeing people saying comfrey needs cold time. So I will need to put them in the refrigerator freezer in, freezer in a Ziploc bag with a damp paper towel? Question mark. Thanks for all you do, Matt. Okay, um, what you're talking about is a process called stratification. Do not put your seeds in the freezer. If you're going to stratify seeds, you put them in the refrigerator, okay? not the freezer. Especially if they're hydrated with moisture, because then the moisture in them, when we freeze things, turns to ice, and it expands, and boom, and it ruptures the little seed cells, and it's all unhappy and sad, and it won't grow. Okay, If it's going to be moist, it needs to be at refrigerator temperatures. Okay, it's in the soil... Even when it freezes, it stays not quite frozen down in the earth, unless you have permafrost, and that's a different world, and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so that's what we would want to do if this was necessary. So if we wanted to stratify apple seed, for instance, it needs approximately 90 days. So I've seen apples start to germinate in 30 to 40 days anyway, even though they say it needs 90. So what we do is we take some paper towel or some vermiculite, we moisten it, and we put it in a... In a a bag just like you're saying. We put some seeds in there with it, and we zip that up, put it in our refrigerator, and try to make a little reminder for ourselves so we don't forget about it and find it a year later. And it's kind of a science experiment, Jack. Uh, yeah, I did that. Anyway, so we don't want to forget about it. We get those seeds out, we plant them, and they grow. Um, comfrey is said to need, and this is comf- uh, this is uh, Cifrum officinalis. This is true comfrey because... The clones like Bocking 4 and Bocking 14, which we won't get into today, they don't reproduce from seed. They're sterile clones. They reproduce from cuttings. And that's why people plant those. They plant those because that way they don't have to worry about them spreading. You spread them by pulling roots out of the ground and planting roots, and they grow from clones. And officinalis, or true comfrey, that reproduces from seed, will also reproduce that way. So you don't need a lot of it to make a lot of it. You can literally take a healthy comfrey plant and take a shovel and cut right through the center of it like you've destroyed it, yank a bunch of roots out of the ground, leaving some behind, throw the dirt back on it, and a new plant will come, or the, the, the existing plant will regrow, and every little piece of root you plant anywhere will grow a new plant. That's how awesome it is. So the first question is, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this from seed, especially if we want to make salve? If you want to make salve, you'd like to do it soon. So sooner rather than later. So if we produce a comfrey plant from seed, 
we're probably about two years from drilling a big, healthy crown that we can divide and make more out of, okay? First year we can make some, but we're going to be little bitty pieces and we're going to set ourselves back. But it's going to be two years till we have that huge plant with lots of leaves that we can cut and make a big bunch of salve because comfrey salve is one of the best wound healers on the planet, all right? That's why we'd want to do this if you're new to the show. So the reason you want to grow a fish analysis, it's considered to have the lowest amount of alkaloids that are considered potentially toxic to the liver. That's, that's one reason. Which, that can be absorbed through the skin, so it would make sense. And it's considered the best choice for medicinal use. Now, I use 4 and 14 all the time for medicinal use. And even though the government says I'll die, if I wanted to use some internally for any reason, I would do it. I'm not saying you should. I'm saying I would, and I'm not dead. And my liver's fine, Okay. My birds eat it, and they have, when I, when I butcher my birds, they have the healthiest livers I've ever seen in my life, and they're why I have so little comfrey around here, because as much as I've planted, they've eaten. So the reason you grow the officinalis is because it is best suited for medicinal use. That's why, which is exactly what he's doing, so fine. So what I would say is you can go to somewhere like Horizon Herbs and buy comfrey sufficient officinalis roots. And plant those and be so far ahead. That that's what I would do. Now, how do we start comfrey from seed? I've done it. It's not hard. If it was hard, no one would worry about planting sterile clones. It wouldn't reproduce so well on its own. You don't need to do refrigeration stratification for your comfrey. This is what I would recommend. About two to three weeks prior to your last frost, get your pots that you want to start your comfrey in. Or you can go straight to the ground if you want to do this. If you go in the ground, make sure you mulch heavily. Put your seeds in. If you're going to do it in pots, put it in the garage or somewhere where when you do get a frost, you're not going to freeze the whole thing solid, right? If you, I mean, if you're, if you're still in a time of year where you're getting like 15 below zero and stuff like that, don't. But if you're going to have temperatures in the high 20s still, like that end of year, but it's going to be cold in the garage, just put them in the pots and put four or five seeds in each pot. And at least one of them is going to, you know, if you get 25%, germination with four at least one's going to germinate in every pot as they start to grow pot them up and get them into the ground as soon as possible comfrey doesn't like plant uh, pots it has big deep roots and it wants to go for it transport plant them out into the garden uh about the time of the you know your average last frost date and go on from there if you want to plant straight into the ground put four or five seeds in every place you want to plant mulch under at least an inch of mulch And if it comes up on its own, fine. If not, when you get past your danger of last frost date, in that area, pull back your mulch that's about a quarter inch and wait for your comfrey to emerge. And that's all you have to do. But just to tell you why you could be so far ahead so much faster, let me look something up for you. So I went to Horizon Herbs real quick and looked up True Comfrey Root, which is Cifram Aficionale, um, and they sell their roots for $5 a piece. And you could probably cut each root, no problem, into three pieces and plant all those and get three plants that will be way ahead of your seeds really, really fast. And comfrey is one of those plants where, you know, planting from seed doesn't get you a better result. It doesn't matter. You can literally plant a quarter-inch piece of comfrey and it just takes off faster than a seed can. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do this. That's why I told you how to do it. I'm just saying, if you want to get a lot of comfrey going pretty quick, and you, you specifically want to use true comfrey, uh, again, the non-clone, 
then you can still get roots for it. And if you find wild comfrey anywhere, if you can find a stand of wild comfrey, just start yanking roots out of the ground. A lot of the people selling comfrey on, on eBay that are selling it so cheap you wonder how they can do it, that's, they're not propagating it. They know somewhere, a field somewhere where there's tons of comfrey, and they just go dig it up whenever they get an order because it's that simple. I just want to let you know that. With that, we'll wrap up for the day. Hope you enjoyed today's show. I enjoyed today's show. I had a good time doing today's show. I've been pretty tired lately um, with just so much going on, and I haven't been able to really have fun with a show like this. So let's end with a fun song, why don't we? Going back to uh, Jimmy Buffett again, one of my favorite singer-songwriters, and this is from 1999. It's not an old Jimmy Buffett song. It's not the ones you know by heart that are on the album of the same name or even one of the lesser-knowns in the great box collection called Beaches, Boats, Bars, and Ballads, which is a four-disc set that's uh, probably now all available as a download. If you love Buffett, I recommend that highly. Uh, Beach House of the Moon again came out in 1999. And uh, one day I will play a song for you guys. Um, and maybe I'll play it for you when I find out. So i got to tell you guys something really cool. I am going to be Papa Jack yet again. Maybe that's why I'm in a good mood. Uh, my son and my, my, uh, my daughter-in-law uh, had us come have lunch with them and, uh, this Saturday. And it was so that they could tell us the news that she is going to have a new baby. And uh, so I have one grandson who's now four years old, and I am about to be Papa Jack twice. So I'm going to be a grandfather times two, which I think is really cool. And if that's if I find out that's a girl, that'll be the right day to play this other Jimmy Buffett song. It's called Little Miss Magic. So uh, Jimmy has a daughter named uh, Savannah, Savannah Jane, and he wrote a song for her. She's a bit older than his son uh, quite a while ago called Little Miss Magic. It's a great song. If you've never heard it, look it up. And so, like all good fathers, if you do something for one child, sooner or later you've got to do it for all of them. So he has a son named Cameron. And he wrote this song for Cameron, and it's a fun song, and it's also a historically unique song. And it's called the same as the name of the album, Beach House on the Moon. Listen to the words. This one's really cool. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything we've talked about today. And it has... Absolutely nothing to do with survivalism. But it's a fun song, and it's got some really cool historical context. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Victoria down the river named the Nile 
drifts a tiny little handmade boat It's shaped just like a smile And steered by a magician with the knowledge that he needs To keep him on his destined course As the crocodiles and reeds He's the admiral of the ocean The long eagle in the sky He gave me my first sextant And he taught me how to fly Quite a lengthy passage from the dawn of time till now He has weathered the infernal storms in his trusty petty dow He has soared above colossal waves, sailed the endless sea Sometimes he resembles you, sometimes he looks like me I saw him through my telescope on a cloudless night in June As he rested between voyages at his beach house on the moon There are windows to the galaxies and hallways to the past There are trapdoors to the future and a splintered ancient mast There are relics from Apollo trips When the Earthmen came to play And a hammock from a distant star Out in the Milky Way He's the Admiral of the Ocean The lone eagle in the sky He gave me my first sextant and he taught me how to fly I saw him through my telescope On a cloudless night in June As he rested between voyages At his beach house on the moon Sunset fades away And our journey from the sea of storms Takes us home beside the bay We go fishing in the ocean We go traveling back in time Like the song says Teach your children to go fishing with their minds Cameron's contemplating I'm not sure just what he thinks is my dad some kind of lunatic with his stories and hijinks? Then he said, when I get old and gray, I feel like I'm marooned. 
he will take me in his rocket ship to that beach house on the moon. 